good grief. Question everything. Today we have a guest who has written Facing the Climate Emergency, How to Transform Yourself with Climate Truth. We're welcoming Margaret Klein-Solomon and uh, let's read a bio for Margaret. So Margaret has a PhD and is a clinical psychologist turned climate warrior whose work helps people face the deeply frightening, painful truths of the climate emergency and transform their despair into effective action. She is the founder and executive director of the Climate Mobilization, which advocates for an all hands on deck, whole society mobilization to protect humanity and the living world from climate catastrophe and helped pioneer the Climate Emergency Declaration Campaign, which has led to more than 1,400 global governments to declare a climate emergency. She is the author of the book we're talking about today, which again is Facing the Climate Emergency, How to Transform Yourself with Climate Truth, a radical new self-help guide to the climate emergency. Welcome, Margaret. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. It's very exciting. We have a number of questions, but first... I was so excited to learn you're from Ann Arbor. I grew up 45 minutes away from there in a little town called Adrian. And I find now that I don't live in Michigan that we often get told by people, particularly Californians, how Michigan we are in our essence (laughs) of work. And I'm curious uh, what your experience growing up in Ann Arbor looked like. Well, first, I want to say Ann Arbor declared a climate emergency some months ago, and but just a couple weeks ago announced a plan for getting to zero emissions by 2030 that has a billion dollar price tag. It's it's still just a plan, but it's a it's on the scale that we're talking about. So yeah, go go blue. Awesome, <laughs> go blue. I think. Uh, Michigan, the Midwest, there is a less, there's a, there's a culture of um, hard work, uh, uh, neighborliness, and like being a good host, for example, and, um, and modesty rather than consumerism and, um, like conspicuous consumption. Not that, not that it's like, you know, everyone is totally defined by those values by any means, but I think there is definitely a, you know, strands of that in the culture. Great place to grow up. Yeah. Agreed. And all the trees. I miss the trees now that I don't live. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're still technically in the Midwest, although we're closer to Wyoming and Colorado. So it feels like we have a bit of the Midwest flavor with the Rocky mountain region behind us. So it's, it's a, it's an ecotone over here where we're living right now. So in the intro, I said it was a very Michigan thing to do for you to come out swinging when you call out the governments. But also we, you don't stop there. You add that media outlets, universities, churches, museums, labor unions, environmental organizations, professional associations, and countless others have also failed to acknowledge and protect us from the climate emergency. First of all, we love this and agree wholeheartedly. And I think this realization causes a lot of rage for me personally when I actually let it sink in about what that means. And Terry Tempest Williams uh, 
beloved writer and mentor of ours, uh, talks about sacred rage quite a lot. And we also realize that anger can sometimes be counterproductive. And so I'd love to hear your reflections on how anger influences this work and what experiences you've had with it. Yeah, good question. I think that it is important to have both anger and compassion which is in it feel that feels like a contradiction but i i don't think that it is and i think that it's important to look at the systems level um rather than like uh you know this is this is a mass failing it's not a failing of of one church or one labor union or one government. It's a failing of like all of them. So, you know, I, I, I don't think it would necessarily be productive to call up a leader of one of those institutions and just berate them for, you know, their failure here. One could try it. Um, but, I, you know, I, yeah, I don't think that's the most yeah, whatever, probably the most effective strategy. But I think acknowledging that you have every right to feel angry, that you have been let down, including by people who, you know, you love and trust. And like, how is it come to this? You know, how, like, that there's dereliction of duty on so many levels. But I think ultimately, for, for me, it's, or the realization is, wow, there's so much systemic failure. Like I have to step into a place of responsibility um, because no one is handling this. I, I mean, not, not no one, whatever. There's individuals, you know, such as yourselves. There's people out there who do get it, but there's, I mean, it is so limited and it is, and it's so still outside of the mainstream. Yeah. A sense of responsibility and a sense of, um, I would say disregard for conventional wisdom in the, in the sense that, you know, uh, I mean, this is just one example, but there's a lot, but you know, the environmental movement, the mainstream environmental movement, has these ideas about what's possible and gradualism and don't make people afraid. And it's just like, no, you failed. It didn't work. We tried it your way. It didn't work. We need to move on. Powerful. Yeah, right on. And when we're speaking of these heavy or difficult emotions, you talk in the book about your personal transformation that occurred when you understood the severity of the predicament. Can you tell us more about what that looked like? Maybe paint a picture. And I'm asking because Laura and I know from our own experience, it often isn't pretty. And I think if you're living it, it can feel quite isolating. Are you willing to share a bit about that? Sure. And yeah, I totally agree. Isolation and alienation are the most common experiences that I hear about from people living in climate truth, people who have really reckoned with this even more than fear and grief, which people also, you know, experience in a, in a super huge way, but it's just, yeah. So I, I live in Brooklyn. Um, and I, I 
uh, love Prospect Park, big uh, park. I go there a lot, or I used to <laughs> before coronavirus. Um, and so a lot of my memories of this are like took place in that park where I would like go for walks and be thinking about the climate emergency and feel like a, like a red light was flashing in my face. And like, I, you know, my body was tense. I was scared and, you know, feeling it and, and looking at the other people playing Frisbee and going on a picnic and walking their dog and just being like, what are you doing? Like, wake up people. Like this is a dangerous situation. And that sense of alienation makes it so much harder for people to actually face these truths. Um, Doing it together is so much easier. And in my own story, like the real kind of moment, like the inflection points happened with challenges from other people. My, my therapist told me, cause I was talking in therapy about my, my fears about the climate emergency. And she told me, you know, cause she, she didn't, she, she thought I was wrong um, at first. So she thought I was exaggerating. And she said, you, you are afraid. You're so afraid of this, but you really don't know much. And she was right. Uh, my, my fear was quite unformulated, but I was just like, oh, I, that, I mean, that, whatever really challenged me. It like hurt my feelings. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to, I'm going to show her that she's wrong basically. And so I went and read a lot of books uh, starting with Bill McKibben's earth, which is a terrific overview. And, and I came back to her and I was like, I was right. I was absolutely right. Everything, all of my fears were correct. And if she hadn't said that, right, maybe I never would have taken the step to get past the anxiety and fear and discomfort of of reading those books. Maybe I would have kept it in this like diffuse, oh yeah, I'm afraid, but I don't know. You know, it's, yes, it's very unformulated. Um, and then the second huge inflection point um, that like my changed my life and will never go back is when I was planning to start a blog. You know, I was an academic in my PhD program and a clinical psychologist, but I, you know, I've been in school basically my whole life. Uh, so the idea of do like writing and doing commentary seemed like the right approach. Um, but my friend said to me, don't start a blog. Discourse isn't enough. You should actually try to solve this, like go all the way, you know? And I was like, it, like it hadn't occurred to me. Right. I don't, I mean, I don't think it's occurred to most people, right? Like actually try to solve the climate emergency. Like, you know, I'm this like tiny person in a world of six billion or seven billion and like what I I mean yeah but it totally blew my mind and I was like okay let's try (laughs) you know like so in the moments when I wasn't isolated from the climate emergency when I was processing it with other people 
um, both how bad it was and also like, what's my role. Those were like the breakthrough times for me. Yeah. And what did it look like to transition from your PhD program and going into clinical psychology to now heading this organization uh, that's calling for World War II style mobilization? Okay. So after that conversation with my friend, I was like, on fire. Like I had like wide eyes for like two weeks or something. Seriously, more than one person, maybe three people or something told me that they were worried about me (laughs) because I was like, climate emergency. Like, and it was like very sudden. I got more concern in that moment than in like the hardest times of my life (laughs) when I could have really used it. And I was like, no guys, this is good. So it was really intense, but it also did to be fair to these people who were worried about me. I was very extreme, meaning I, at first I was like, okay, well, goodbye PhD. I'm doing this other thing now. And I had one year left. So every single person in my life, was like, finish your PhD, like, duh. And literally every single one. So I was like, okay, I, I'll, I'll yield to the overwhelming advice. And, and, I, and I don't regret it at all because, you know, with this book and so forth, it's like a, you know, a credibility thing. It, it helps me in this work as well as what I learned. Yeah, so I was ready to just screw all this. But I, I didn't. I, I stuck with it. And the, the final year in the PhD program is um, a clinical year, fully, fully clinical. And well, not, no, not, not fully, but just m- more. So <laughs> I was, you know, I was, was seeing a lot of patients and, and I, I love being a therapist and it was great, but I was kind of also felt like I was living kind of a double life. You know, I would go and do my internship, see my patients and go to whatever seminars and then go home and like do climate. And I I felt somewhat concerned that the, my supervisors and so forth wouldn't, would have a problem with it. Um, in part because, you know, I was very, very strategic about like arranging my schedule. So it took me a long time to kind of tell them. And in terms of my patients, you know, some I like asked me about my plans or whatever. And and I told, but many, I, I didn't tell just because in a therapy relationship, you don't, you know, it's not about you. But so yeah, for a while, it felt like kind of a secret. I felt like Batman. But when I did tell my supervisors and just, you know, talk about what I was doing, I was actually amazed. They were so supportive. They donated money. I, I, so I was like, oh, I was secret for absolutely no reason. (laughs) Like this was just all in my head, but, um, but yeah, so it was, you know, it was okay. And then, and then when I earned my PhD, I then transitioned to full-time climate mobilization building, um, in, in clinical psychology, uh, after you get your PhD, you have to do one more year of supervised work before you can get your license and then be like a full on psychologist. So I didn't do it because I wanted to be full on in climate. Well, we're very grateful for your work with the climate mobilization. Right. Right. I am right. I'm not, I'm not a practicing 
therapist in the um, one-on-one traditional sense, but I do still consider what I'm doing a, a type of therapy on like, let's say a different scale. Absolutely. Well, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, I think, later, but you host a lot of sessions asking people to come together. I, I was fortunate enough to participate in one, but it, you know, it seems like you're doing, a, you're juggling a lot of things, many of which we all need collectively. You know, you're promoting this World War II style mobilization, which I'll ask about in a second, but also you're adding additional supports, like emotional support and asking people to come together and remove some of this isolation, which is a really powerful tactic. Thank you. Like I said, I mean, since my friend (laughs) said to me, okay, actually try to solve this, I've just been all in, like, you know, in a way that I've, I've never experienced for anything. So it's like, whatever I can bring to this effort, I'm so happy to, to do and that's whatever, a, a combination of things, psychology. In undergraduate, I studied anthropology. And I'm just, I, I'm a big reader. I really dug into social movement theory and business management theory. Yeah, I, I, I really have this sense of, um, I want to have the most effect possible. And that means utilizing all of my skills and developing ones that I need that I don't have yet. So for example, fundraising was the hardest. I've really kind of cracked it in some ways that it was so hard. When I was making like a fundraising phone call or something, asking someone for money, I would tell myself before doing it, you're being brave now this is an act of courage for the mission you believe in. And it's so pedestrian, you know, we think of courage, you know, I'm going to go get arrested, or I'm going to go storm the barricade. But doing anything that scares you for a greater good, that is courage. So I am really trying to bring everything I can. And I'm thrilled the people I work with certainly are too. And I'm thrilled with how much we've been able to accomplish while also feeling like we're still like at the base of the mountain. Yeah. Yeah. We in the Good Grief Network talk a lot about courage and bravery and showing up. And uh, we were really moved by a portion of your book where you're talking about how uh, all of our skills and personal experiences have been inviting us for this moment. You know, if we feel this internal call within us to do something then how can we use our skills and experiences to, to lean on? And I thought that was a really poignant and, and beautiful invitation to, to listen to your call, listen to what's being invited to come forward. And, and your personal story seems like a really great example of what happens, you know, if, you, if you're trying to look for these openings and you're trying to look for a way to contribute to solutions. And I just want to commend your courage as well for showing up as much as you do in the book. I think it's necessary to help ease isolation that we be transparent about our own journeys. And it feels like a real gift. So thank you. Oh, thanks. I think that transitions well to the fact that Laura and I often talk about how we've both had depression, even suicidal depression at different times in our life, and how facing that question of why are we here? Why are we alive? What's the point in staying alive 
has driven us to this work that we do. And we really admire your courage in the book when you discuss your own thoughts of mortality and meaning. And we wanted to hear what keeps you holding on through the intensity of such heavy times and feelings these days. I think a benefit of really reckoning with the climate emergency and grieving is that there, there is for, for me anyway, to a significant extent, like in another side, like that you come, you know, it is a process to some degree that you go through and then you are done with not all the way. And there's, ongoing challenges and whatnot, but I feel like I have grieved the fact that we are not safe and the life I thought I was living, the future that I thought I had is not going to happen so thoroughly. That's how I reached the point where I can say, I mean, I'm like really all in. And this is what my life is for. And, you know, whatever. I do other things too. Like, uh, you know, I'm married. I like to work out my, whatever. I like to watch Netflix. I have some like minor hobbies or whatever. But this is why I'm here. And everything, I, I, the, the other stuff that I do in my life keeps me healthy and able to show up for this calling. And no matter what happens, if I die from coronavirus or if I die from famine-induced breakdown due to climate or whatever, I, I feel good about how I have spent my time. I mean, really, it's changed everything. Our society tells us that we are competitive and players in this market trying to like get ours maximize our wealth and like luxury and compete with other people and post like hot photos on Instagram or something like that's supposed to be the goal yeah that's not a life really worth living that really sucks so yeah the the idea of having a mission in life, a, a mother, a, a woman I knew I, who uh, had twins, my colleague, I asked her how she was doing. And she said, it's such a relief to care about something more than myself. And I really, really relate to that. I, Cause I was absolutely plenty like in that competitive, you know, me first cultural mode. I mean, I I did it in a like academic way, but like I went to Harvard. That was very important to me. It's not a good way to live. And especially in my teen years, and I know people are, you know, very uncomfortable and awkward about their appearance, but I really, I really felt like very distressed if I had acne. Being so sensitive to like whatever, narcissism, I mean, yeah, appearances, competition. It's what our society tells us to do. It's what, and it, and again, it just, it sucks. So um, having something to live for that's bigger than me, feeling like my life is 
you know, I I'm, have a lot of talents. I have a lot to offer and that's great. And, but what makes it great is putting it in the service of other people, not putting it in the service of just getting mine and like trying to be in the like 30 under 30 or some shit. Amen. Yeah. This, this culture, the, these norms, they're so empty and you've highlighted that so well, you know, it's not where we make meaning. It's not where we can connect with each other. And so like, why not try to create something that's more beautiful and more connecting and more meaningful for all of us. That was always true, but now it's like our current path is clearly doomed Absolutely. So, so it's yeah. not like we have a choice. Do we want to like keep being market-driven animals just out to get ours and hedonism and whatever, or, or do we want to work together? That's not like a choice. It's do, do we want to live or do we want to die? Yeah. yeah. Exactly, Margaret. Thank you. Do we want to live or do we want to die? One way or another, this culture is absolutely killing us. We're really excited to talk about the, your five steps, which I'll go through and read because they relate to our 10 step process that we do in communities as well. Uh, so your five steps are one, face climate truth, two, welcome fear, grief, and other painful feelings, three, reimagine your life story, four, understand and enter emergency mode, five, join the climate emergency movement, live as a climate warrior. And I'm just thinking our step 10 is reinvest into meaningful efforts. And that fits really well with the idea of join the climate emergency movement, live as a climate lawyer. Uh, And uh, what drew you to making, creating steps or um, because as the process. Yeah. I'd love to hear about the process because as we've discovered with our 10 steps, right? Like we're working with really ambiguous kind of gray areas. And so putting a numerical set of steps is a little bit of an art, I would say. And so I'd love to hear about your process for, for making five steps to make it in. And also we've found that people really love having steps, right? Because it is so murky and confusing and to kind of have a map, they really latch onto that. And so I'd love to hear about your process for the five step. It was pretty organic. As I was drafting the book, you know, I had all these different kind of ideas and material and yeah, just kind of was arranging itself in this way. And then I was like, okay, let's do steps for all of the reasons that you're saying. I mean, it is helpful to do that. And yeah, I think potentially steps four and five, understand and enter emergency mode and join the climate emergency movement potentially could be one or somehow um, done differently. But I think face the climate emergency, welcome your fear, grief, and other painful feelings, rethink your life, and then turn that into action is like, you know, whether you have 10 or five or whatever, that is what people need to do. Yeah, well, thank you for creating them. Uh, it, it was a pleasure to read and they feel really intuitive and natural. And I, I think uh, that is helpful when people are, are first coming to the hard work of looking at their feelings uh, about something as big as the climate crisis. 
for as much information and insight that it has in it, it's, it's quite short. Uh, so it's a pretty easy read. And I really like at the end, you have discussion questions. So it kind of allows the reader to pause and reflect on the insights that you've given us in the chapters. Like the, the format seems really clean and really easily accessible. Uh, and Amy and I were talking about the face climate truth where we've faced climate truth and we've been living in this new reality for quite some time. And uh, Amy just kept saying, she's doing this so well. She's framing yeah. it so well. Like the data's all there. The information's there. She's calling out the organizations, the government, the, the huge mass denial campaign that's been happening for years. Like billions of dollars have gone into psychological manipulation of the truth. And you say, if you are even thinking that the climate emergency isn't a real emergency, it's because you've been manipulated, essentially. And it's yeah. because the money the oil company spent actually worked. And I was telling Laura, um, you know, my background, I'm an English major. Like, I really related to the part in your book where you said, like, science was for experts and, like, other people. And um, I think I had kind of been uh, distrusting Laura, who's a science major, to kind of do the work for me there. And it was so nice to see in one chapter, so much information just explicitly stated. It was stuff I had known from going to talks or articles Laura had sent me, but the amount of work it took to get to that concise truth and you've condensed it into one chapter for us. And so that feels like such a gift. And uh, I couldn't get over the fact that over $2 billion were spent to spread lies and what kind of criminal behavior that is and how little it's talked about. I knew it had happened, but $2 billion. I mean, I think about how Laura and I both have six figures of student loan loan debt. Mine's and, not there yet. It's oh, not there yet. I, it's getting there. It's <laughs> close. Okay. Mine's definitely over six figures right now. Um, and it just keeps growing because we don't pay on them. Um, <laughs> but that's besides the point. The point is, is that feels like so much money and like we'll never get ahead to be in that kind of debt. And then you hear that $2 billion are spent to spread lies. And how does that not absolutely enrage people? And why is this not being talked about more? And so thank you for putting that specific detail in there. I think it is important we realize what kind of money was being spent to spread lies. This is, this is actually my main way that I talk with uh, deniers, like straight classic Republican deniers, is that I, I just say, listen, the oil in industry has done a multi-billion dollar campaign to uh, spread lies and manipulate people. And I'm sorry to tell you, it has worked on you. And it's a pretty aggressive thing to say, but I think it's true. And I think you are being made a fool and you can stop doing that and actually live in reality. Yeah, yeah. such a great point. I wanted to take a minute and talk about your exploration of these really painful and heavy feelings. We've noticed this in our work, but sometimes these feelings feel so overwhelming that it prevents us from acting in the world. And your invitation in your book is like, let's look at these feelings and let's respond with absolute self-compassion when they arise. Uh, can you speak a little bit more about that? So in my clinical psych work, in my, in my work treating patients, this was an intervention that I made in, I, I believe, literally every instance, which is telling people that they don't need to feel guilty or ashamed or judgmental in any way of what they feel. And just helping people 
distinguish between thoughts, feelings, and actions. Because while it, it sounds kind of obvious, it is, I don't know, 90% of people feel, say things like, you know, I, sh- I shouldn't feel that way, right? I shouldn't feel that way. You hear it all the time. I'm so, I'm so bored and stressed out about coronavirus, but other people have it worse. So I shouldn't feel that way. And it's just like, no, you don't have to do that. It doesn't help anyone for you to try and keep your feelings all pretty and clean and like acceptable. The psychoanalytic view of the self, you know, what's inside us is like a crazy, chaotic, but creative situation with unconscious, you know, uh, thoughts and feelings from childhood and like our trauma and our irrational selves. You know, the psychoanalytic view of an adult is that, yes, they're an adult, but they're also still a child. Like that part never leaves us. So of course we feel irrational things. That's just part of the human experience. So having that basic approach to thoughts and feelings, I mean, honestly, I think it's probably the single most important one thing if we could make this intervention into like our collective mental health it would be, I mean, it would be transformative. That's what fundamentalist religions do, is they give people a system for managing what's inside them, right? Their sexuality, their anger, that, you know, that chaos. And it's, it's this very rigid thing, you know, say this many prayers this many times a day and follow these set of rules, and then it's okay. Everybody needs to help in dealing with, you know, their intense uh, emotional experience. And so, so yeah, so that's a starting point for me. But then um, with the climate, I mean, the feelings are so big, right? For I think most people's reaction to that is these are so big, so I need to keep them contained, they're too big, right? The psychological reaction, the psychologist's reaction is just the opposite. These feelings are so big, that means they're extra important. That means we, if we, if we don't like, because that's the, that's the, like one of the key insights or like (laughs) ignoring something doesn't make it go away. If you, if you try to just be like, oh, my climate grief, my climate terror, guilt, anger, all that stuff, I, I, you know, I don't want to deal with it. I want to keep it contained. It will, it's just there every day. It's, it's waiting for you. It's nagging you. It's, uh, you know, bleeding into all of your other things that you're doing. It's, it's just not a strategy that works to deal with your feelings. This is a quote specifically about grief, but I think it were, it's true for all feelings, but it's like that you can't get over grief. The only way out of grief is through. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So it's like the, the, the only way to deal with these incredibly intense feelings that we have every right to have, they're super reasonable, is to welcome them and to learn about them and to talk about them and to name them 
And it, and I, I just, I like, I guarantee you, like you have the psychologist stamp on this. It will make you feel better, not worse. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people come to us thinking that they might get stuck in the grief or in the rage or these other heavy feelings that they're experiencing. And what I found is really interesting is, is we try to come at it from the perspective that feelings are additional data points. Yes. You know, they're places to check in. They allow you additional information. And somehow in our culture, we've parsed out science data from feelings data. You know, they both can't be data points. One is more important than the other. And so we're trying to bring back in this emotional intelligence, this idea, like, what is that anger trying to tell you? What is that grief trying to tell you? I mean, probably the grief is a direct reflection of your love and your pain and, and the loss that you're either perceiving or the real loss that's happening right now in the world. Right. Absolutely. And on a very foundational level, that this is important. Pay attention to this. Any feeling that's so big and so strong is there for a reason. What is it trying to tell you? Yeah. Another thing that we've uh, really noticed and come back to is some people have the illusion that, you know, if you work with your grief or you disperse some of these heavy feelings, like you've kind of gotten past them. They're not going to come back again. Right. And uh, we, we often share like, no, they absolutely will come back. We're living in a time of really severe climate chaos. They will come back again, but what we will have done is practice ways to sit with these feelings and try to metabolize them so they're not distracting us or or pulling our attention away. We better learn how to be with them and actually lean into them instead of leaning away. Yeah, I agree. I think the other answer that is uh, go all in on action And if you get your life, like what you're doing aligned with those feelings, like it's not intention, then they're not so intense. I mean, at least for for me, because they're always there. Yeah. Okay. So my next question, you're talking about action and I think you have a really great plan laid out and and the plan is, is proving to be successful. You know, we mentioned in the intro that you've had, I think 1400 climate declarations. So you're calling for World War II style mobilization to protect humanity and the natural world from climate catastrophe. But here we are, and we're all stuck inside. We're quarantined, we're isolated. So how do we mobilize from our homes? What does this look like? How can we keep being action oriented while we're all sort of stuck? Yeah, that is certainly a challenge. Uh, I I should just uh, mention the climate mobilization. I'm definitely proud that we were a a pioneer in that campaign and brought on partners. But yeah, Extinction Rebellion, the Global Greens Party, many, many, many local partners got those declarations. Okay, so organizing in the time of coronavirus. Yeah, very tough. I cannot say that I'm an expert But I will say this is a good opportunity to talk to people about the climate emergency. Talking to people is always critically important. It's the one thing that I tell everyone who asks me, what should I do? It's talk to the people in your life about the climate emergency, your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, like, yeah, don't break, break the cycle of silence. It's really dangerous. So 
there's limitations given the coronavirus, but there are also opportunities such as a lot of people have a lot of time. And I suggest being kind of formal about it, putting calls on your calendar, you know, okay, my cousin, my brother, my friend, we're gonna, we're gonna um, talk at this time. And we're going to talk about the climate emergency. And, you know, you maybe if you want, you can send them something to read in advance, but it's not necessary. And when you have those conversations, do it personally, right? Don't give a PowerPoint of scientific data, but just talk about like, I'm so scared. You know, I've been feeling this way for a while. Like, this is what I see happening in the world. This is what I see the future holding. And I want to get involved. I would like you to get involved too, whatever. I mean, there's no one right way to have this kind of conversation. The most important thing is to have it at all, because by not having it, you are without meaning to sending the people in your life, the message that you actually don't care or don't know, or don't view it as an emergency. And so if that's not true, you need to correct the record. And what's amazing when you have these kinds of conversations is that people will very frequently say, oh my God, me too. Yep. Right? Because if nobody's talking about this, you don't know who feels the same way you do. Yeah. So that's, that's my just number one recommendation. Yeah. Thank you. You have a, you. a really powerful short quote that I really loved. I wrote it down. It says, start by telling the truth loudly and all the time. And I love that. I'm a very loud person. I like to be loud. I, I also have been trying to be a truth teller in my life. And for a long time, it's been so isolating, which you spoke to earlier. I've read the reports. I've seen the data. Like the, This is happening whether or not we're talking about it. And for you to just say, start by telling the truth and do it loudly and all the time, like, thank you. Thank you for giving <laughs> me the permission to do that because I'm, I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> all right. When, you know, when I'm walking on the street and, and my neighbors say like, oh, like beautiful day or whatever, if it's too hot for the season, I'll say, no, this is global warming. This is not good. Whatever. Like, I mean, again, it's, it's intense. It's not um, the easiest way to conduct oneself, but breaking the silence and doing what we can for humanity in the living world is more important than the social awkwardness. Yeah, the time for those formalities are over. Yeah, yeah. for sure. I, uh, I have a funny story that I'll share. And that's when Amy and I were telling her parents that we were together. Amy prefaced the conversation or with me in our hotel room before telling her parents, she said, I need you to dress up and I need you to not talk about the apocalypse. And I said, I feel like you're telling me not to be me. <laughs> <laughs> Unreasonable conditions, Amy. My husband uh, requested that we not talk about the apocalypse in our wedding vows. Um, <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> so, but but I so what we what we landed on is um, come what may, we're better together. Oh, That's beautiful. It. I've been thinking about how if we invest all of our collective time and energy into transitioning our social, political, economic, and cultural lives even if we do this perfectly, we're still committed to some amount of climate change and we've altered the world in big ways. Knowing this, where do you find hope and what does hope look like? Is that even a word you're comfortable using? Um, I am comfortable using hope, but only in the active hope sense that jo Joanna Macy uses it. If you're hopeful that 
other people will solve this. That is a problem. I am hopeful because I really believe in people's capacity to change. That's one of the most wonderful things about being a psychotherapist is that it works and people change in dramatic ways. They go from being depressed to not depressed and then they go find a really cool new job and then they're pursuing that and then they, you know, find a partner and they weren't able to really do that before. And it's not because the therapist or this is magic. It is because we, that's what we're built for. The psychologist Karen Horney used the metaphor of a, a chestnut growing into a tree that all, you just need to do some really basic stuff, you know, plant it, water it, remove obstacles. But like the growth process is in the organism itself. You're just like, yeah, clearing the way. So I, yeah, I just really, really believe in that. I think basically our, how our society is structured now is a huge blocker to people's growth and development. I mean, I hate it. I hate it when people are so negative about like human nature. I don't agree with that. It blames human nature for things that like the advertising industry. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that is telling us all the time how to be and that we smell bad and, you know, we need to get this and this and this and this to be okay. And and, and many other things about our society. So I don't like hope that's based on other people doing stuff. And I don't like hope that's based on euphemism. So it's like, let's be frank. Things are terrible. Things are terrible in the climate. Things are terrible in the sixth mass extinction of species. Things are terrible in our democracy and in our society. But that doesn't have to be the end of the story. As a therapist, right, people, people who come into therapy, not always, but a lot of times, are doing really badly, right? Like, they didn't want to come to therapy, but they kind of reached a point. They were like, okay, I really need to do this. And that's okay. It's okay to start from a terrible place. You know, you just got to be going in the right direction. Thank you. Thank you. Margaret, I'm wondering if you have any advice for us, uh, for your readers, for people who are interested in really making an impact. What advice do you have to offer us in these times? Focus on collective social movement-based change and, and working together and uh, working with other people. Do not spend your time and energy beyond a quite limited amount uh, trying to purify your consumption. Being, you know, vegan and zero waste and, you know, these different kinds of things. I get it. And I'm not against it. Uh, we have solar panels, you know, and that's great, uh, but it's not politics. So to just keep that in mind, because, you know, one of the things the oil companies did is tell us that uh, it's our fault, yeah. right? And it's not. We, we were all born into this absolutely messed up system and it's not our fault, but it is our responsibility. Yeah, yeah, right on. Yeah, and then for just for wrapping up, our final question we'd like to ask is, is there anything that's been on your mind or heart lately that you'd like to share with us? Dedicating yourself to canceling the apocalypse and protecting all life 
is the most challenging thing you will ever do. When you set your ambitions on saving the world, there is always more to do. Your career and finances may suffer. Your relationships may be strained. You will certainly experience setbacks and frustrations. Do it anyway. Even though you don't have every skill, even though you have faults, you are good enough to do this work. By dedicating your life to a safe climate, you contribute to protecting all life. You matter. Be proud of your courage and contributions. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. It's such a gift to hear it in your own voice. We're here today with Margaret Klein-Solomon of the Climate Mobilization, and we're so grateful for your time and your energy and your work. Thank you both for your work. It's uh, really important. And I think just generally speaking, we should talk about ways to uh, synergize. That's, that'll be the next conversation. Absolutely. Thank you. And it has been a delight. Thank you. As we're wrapping up, I'd like to take a second and thank Dick Meyer and Mary Migliorelli for their unwavering support of the Good Grief Network. We couldn't be doing this work without you folks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Why, a Good Grief Network podcast with Amy Lewis Rowe and Laura Schmidt. A special thank you to all of our patrons who donate money every month so that we can continue to build the Good Grief Network. If you're interested in becoming a patron or donor, please visit our website at goodgriefnetwork.org.